0: PD Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this program. I am professor of pediatrics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Thank you so much for joining me this week. For our 41st episode of the podcast, I hope everybody enjoyed last week's inspirational tour of Indian pediatric cardiology with that pioneer of pediatric cardiology in that region of the world, Professor Raman Krishnakumar. For those who haven't had an opportunity to listen to that episode, I would strongly recommend you take a listen, if for any other reason than to be inspired about what a single person can do to change the world. This week, we get back to the world of fetal cardiology. And we're going to be reviewing a recent report last month in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And the title of the work is Home Monitoring for Fetal Heart Rhythm During Anti-Roe Pregnancies. The first author is Bettina Cunio, and the senior author Edgar Jaiaghi. And this work comes to us from 16 different centers throughout the United States. And the first author comes from Children's Hospital of Colorado in Aurora, Colorado. Accompanying this work is an editorial entitled Could timing be everything for antibody-mediated congenital heart block? And the authors of this editorial are Carolyn Altman and Shreya Sheth from Texas Children's Hospital. When we are finished reviewing the paper and the editorial... Dr. Patina Cunio has graciously agreed to speak with us today about this paper. I am excited to have such a prominent expert in fetal cardiology join us to discuss this very important work. So let's get straight onto the article, and when we're done, we'll speak with its first author. Bettina Cunio. Once again, the title of this work is Home Monitoring for Fetal Heart Rhythm During anti row Pregnancies. The first author is Bettina Cunio, and the senior author Edgar Jaigi. and this work comes to us from Children's Hospital Colorado in Aurora, Colorado, as well as 15 other centers participating in a multi-center effort. It's been established that roughly 2 to 3 percent of pregnant women have symptomatic or asymptomatic autoimmune disease, and a large proportion of them have anti row so-called SSA antibodies, or Sjogren's antibodies. Fetal complete heart block can occur in 2-5% to 5% of such pregnancies, with a recurrence rate as high as 25% in further pregnancies. Although fetal complete heart block appears to be irreversible, there are anecdotal reports suggesting that treatment of second degree AV block can sometimes restore normal sinus rhythm. In most standard care, weekly or biweekly scans are performed, but these rarely will detect AV block in time for possible treatment. And the most likely explanation for this is the rapid transition from normal conduction to third degree block. The authors of this paper previously demonstrated that an ambulatory heart rate monitoring program in fetuses is feasible. And the title of this program is heart sounds at home in this program anti-rho women would monitor heart rate and rhythm twice a day in an ambulatory setting and a fetal echo was then performed if the fetal rhythm was determined to be irregular or slow in the current report the authors summarize the echocardiographic monitoring results and outcomes of 273 anti-rho ssa positive pregnancies surveilled by both echocardiography and home fetal heart rate monitoring. Monitoring at home was carried out using an FDA approved home monitoring device which could monitor heart rate and rhythm at home. Parents were instructed to call the investigators if there was a fetal heart rhythm irregularity or if the heart rate was determined to be less than 100 beats per minute or finally if a fetal heart rate could not be detected. In this study, mothers were evaluated within eight hours of this call with a problem and if second or third degree heart block was diagnosed, transplacental treatment was offered, typically with IVIG and steroids. As noted previously, anti row women were recruited in these 16 centers in this prospective observational study. And between 18 and 26 weeks gestation, fetal heart rate and rhythm was assessed twice a day as I've just explained. And if any of the three major abnormalities, specifically an irregular heartbeat, a heart rate less than 100, or no fetal heart rate could be detected... Then an echocardiogram was performed by the fetal experts within eight hours of this call. At 26 weeks gestation, this monitoring was then discontinued. There's a lot of data in this paper in light of trying to make these descriptions a little bit shorter, I'm going to cut to the chase in regards to these results. Out of 273 anti-Rho positive mothers, an abnormal heart rhythm or rate was identified in 21 by the patients, or 7% of the 273 subjects. Of these 21 abnormal fetal heart rate monitoring abnormalities, 18 were benign, but 3 of these 21 had 2nd or 3rd degree heart block. It should be noted that first-degree AV block was actually identified also in four fetuses at between 19 and 26 weeks gestation. One of these fetuses had first-degree AV block in EFE and was treated with dexamethasone, and all of these patients were continued to be monitored after the study period. No fetus with first-degree AV block developed second-degree AV block in this study. And this is an important finding, that first-degree AV block in this work did not progress. And what happened to the three infants who had second or third degree block? The authors report that the first fetus had Mobitz I second degree AV block and was treated with dexamethasone and then IVIG, and this restored sinus rhythm, and the infant was delivered in sinus rhythm with an AV interval of 165 milliseconds. It should be noted that this change in rhythm was observed to occur only after three days, meaning that the fetal echocardiogram was normal just three days before Mobitz I block was identified. And this clearly speaks to the rapidity with which this process occurs in fetuses. The second of the three infants was identified to have bradycardia with a heart rate less than 100 beats per minute. And eight hours after detecting the bradycardia, and 32 hours after the last normal rhythm, because the rhythm had not been assessed BID, the diagnostic echocardiogram demonstrated third-degree AV block and EFE. And the mother was immediately treated with dexamethasone and IVIG. But despite this therapy, which was given in an aggressive fashion, the fetus remained in third-degree AV block and was born alive with complete heart block and ultimately received an epicardial pacemaker. The third and last infant who had an abnormal fetal heart rate at home was diagnosed with an irregular heartbeat, but the mother chose to wait 12 hours, and at the second abnormal fetal heart rate which at that time was not irregular but was slow. The investigators were contacted and the patient treated aggressively with dexamethasone and IVIG but third degree heart block was identified and did not resolve and that infant also received a pacemaker shortly after birth. Thus, in summary, the authors state that in three fetuses, second or third degree AV block was detected by fetal heart rate monitoring. In all three cases, echocardiographic signs of cardiac disease, including EFE and AV valve regurgitation, were seen at the time of AV block, but not preceding AV block. When following the twice-daily monitoring protocol... Abnormal fetal heart rate monitoring signifying second-degree AV block could be detected 12 hours after a normal fetal heart rate monitor. A prompt diagnostic fetal echocardiogram following within 12 hours of an abnormal fetal heart rate monitoring resulted in a successful treatment of second-degree AV block but a 24-hour delay in home monitoring, diagnosis, and treatment resulted in progression to irreversible third-degree AV block. Finally, echocardiography detected four fetuses with first-degree AV block and none had an abnormal fetal heart rate monitor or developed second or third-degree AV block. No fetal AV block was missed by fetal heart rate monitoring at home. Among subjects receiving postnatal ECGs, no AV block developed between the end of the monitoring period, which was at 26 weeks, and birth. In their summary, the authors state that there are a number of important findings of this prospective surveillance study. First, they confirmed the previous findings that surveillance of fetal heart rate and rhythm at home by Doppler monitoring is feasible, reassuring and even empowering to mothers, and does not increase anxiety. Moreover, it was able to successfully identify abnormal fetal heart rate and rhythm, including three cases of AV block. The second and perhaps somewhat frightening finding was that the window of time for second-degree AV block to progress to irreversible third-degree AV block appears to be very short, perhaps even as little as less than 24 hours. And surprisingly, they did not see any instances of first-degree AV block transitioning to second-degree AV block. Importantly, there was no high-grade fetal AV block that was missed by home monitoring. The authors explain the fact that a number of the abnormal recordings, as I mentioned earlier, turned out to have no disease. And they state that at the present time, they often ask the mothers to send an actual recording of the fetal heart rate in order that the investigators can listen to it and make a more accurate determination. Certainly, cell phone technology has made that markedly easier than it would have been even two to five years ago. The authors comment on the fact that the number of fetuses who developed AV block in this cohort, about 1%, was somewhat smaller than would be expected from other studies. They explain that one possible explanation is that a large number of patients were taking Plaquenil, which has been shown to reduce the a priori risk of AV block in this group. Some mothers in this group had positive antibodies, but very low quantitative values that have been associated with the absence of AV block in fetuses. And finally, only 5% of the mothers in this study had a previous child with conduction system disease and a history of anti ro antibodies, and this too may have reduced the total percentage of infants affected in this group. The authors speak of the major limitation of this work, specifically that there was only one infant in whom intervention was successful, and so no conclusions can be drawn regarding timing of therapy or efficacy of therapy, though many conclusions can be drawn regarding the time sequence from which an infant or a fetus can progress from normal conduction to complete heart block. And the authors conclude that the use of home surveillance monitoring provides a means in future studies to test the hypothesis that earlier detection of evolving AV block will result in earlier treatment and that earlier treatment will restore one-to-one AV conduction. Accompanying this work is an editorial written by Carolyn Altman and Shreya Sheth. And these authors come from Texas Children's Hospital, Baylor College of Medicine. The title of their editorial comment is, Could Timing Be Everything for Antibody-Mediated Congenital Heart Block? The editorial starts with a really wonderful review of heart block in fetal medicine, and for those in the audience who are not as knowledgeable about this topic, I would encourage people to read at least the first page of this two-page editorial, as it is a lovely summary of the disease. The authors speak of the incidence of congenital heart block as being 1 in 15,000 pregnancies, and that it can result in significant prenatal morbidity, such as growth restriction, or even high drops, and it carries a 30% risk for fetal demise, and that this risk is even higher if there is a dilated myopathy or endocardial fibroelastosis. The majority of survivors of congenital complete heart block do end up with pacemakers. The maternal anti-rho and la antibodies that are the cause of block can cross the placenta as early as 11 weeks gestation, and these can potentially injure the myocardium, endocardium, or AV node, and the highest risk period is between 15 to 26 weeks gestation, thus explaining the time frame in which the authors of this work perform their study. Prior efforts to study the precise rate of progression of this disorder have been challenging, as most times fetuses at risk for this are monitored weekly, and the frequency of observation of most common testing has not allowed a determination of the progression from r- normal sinus rhythm to heart block. The authors then explain that Plaquenil is commonly used for mothers with autoimmune disease to reduce the risk of block, and when present, steroids and IVIG are the mainstays of therapy, but they restate the fact that once third-degree has been seen, reversal is usually not possible, though if block is seen at an earlier stage of second-degree block, then some reports have shown that institution of these therapies may reverse the course but the problem has always been identifying the infants in the correct time fashion in order to treat them before third-degree heart block develops. In reference to this report, the authors comment on the fact that this device was clearly well-tolerated and easy to use as evidenced by the nearly 90% completion rate amongst mothers enrolled. They also emphasized that in the patients with block the progression was very rapid and the only mother in whom therapy of steroids and IVIG were started in less than 24 hours from onset were successful, suggesting that there may be a very small golden window in which to effect change. Doctors Altman and colleague then speak of the underpowering of this work to determine if therapies such as IVIG and steroids are actually going to be effective most of the time, as only one fetus was identified in a timely enough fashion for therapy, and they state that further studies with a more at-risk population with more frequent monitoring may even work better and are probably needed. They also mention that the inclusion of the mothers as part of the diagnostic team may lead to a more family-centered approach to diagnosis and management of these high-risk pregnancies and greater parental satisfaction. And they conclude the work by stating that if further studies indicate that rapid diagnosis and therapy can lead to avoidance of complete heart block, then timing really may be everything in the prevention of antibody-mediated complete heart block. Well, this is certainly a very provocative paper as it demonstrates to us that there is a real possibility of identifying that golden window in which we can potentially intervene and prevent a potentially life-threatening or life-altering event, specifically complete heart block. Remember also that the effect of these antibodies can result in endocardiofibroelastosis and cardiomyopathy, so it is not only heart block that we are concerned with in this particular situation certainly i'm in agreement with the authors of the editorial that further studies of this technology are clearly needed particularly with more frequent observations ultimately however given that two to three percent of women have autoimmune disease although at a very low level i think if this technology is ultimately identified to be effective at intervening for the possibility of complete heart block we're going to need to figure out who is at the highest risk and who would benefit from this type of technology clearly we cannot have two to three percent of all pregnant patients using this type of monitoring and so i think correlating these findings with tighter levels will probably be critically important going forward in the interest of time, I think I'm going to keep my comments very short, as we have already reviewed a very important editorial on this work by authors who clearly know a lot more about this topic than I do. Therefore, at this time, I think we'll go straight on to our interview with Dr. Cunio. Joining us now on the podcast is Professor Bettina Cunio, who is Professor of Pediatrics and Obstetrics at the University of Colorado. She is the Director of Perinatal Cardiology and Fetal Cardiac Telemedicine. Dr. Cunio received her bachelor's degree at Lawrence University, her medical degree at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and completed her residency at Case Western Reserve University. Following that, she did her fellowship at Children's Memorial Hospital at Northwestern University. It is a great honor to have someone of her prominence on the podcast this week. Welcome, Dr. Cunio, to the podcast. Okay, we're here now with Bettina Cuneo. Bettina, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Everybody's very excited that you're on this week.
1: Well, Rob, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me.
0: My pleasure. Bettina, I really enjoyed this paper. I thought it was uh, just very exciting to me because, of course, I'm not a fetal specialist, but I am an electrophysiologist, and so heart block is something that's very interesting to me and to many of my colleagues. As a non-fetal cardiologist, though, I wondered if you might be able to explain to the audience how difficult or easy it is for most of the pregnant patients to use the fetal heart rate monitor that you describe in this work. Does it take a long time to train the parent in this device? Are there certain sorts of patients in whom it's more difficult or even easier to use? And how does it work in terms of the device? Does your center own them and lend them out or are they bought from an outside source?
1: Well, thanks for the question, Rob. It's a very, a very good question, and I'll start with the last part. We are very, very fortunate that we had a family from Chicago whose fetus and, and infant I treated, uh, who unfortunately did not have a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to remember her. And so they donated uh, some funds that we have used to purchase the monitor. Wow. And you, you can see her name and, and the family's name on the back of the paper. We acknowledge them and their generosity in providing this, you know, these funds, which have been really instrumental in us moving forward. Wow. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the the novelty of this paper really is the simplicity that we are using the tried and true method to figure out how the fetus is doing, basically fetal well-being. But rather than having a healthcare provider do it in the office with sophisticated machinery, we're having the mothers do it at home, and that empowers them, and I, I think makes them feel like they're really, uh, you know, providing care for their fetus, which is really important sure. as a mother.
0: Sure. So,
1: as, as far as the monitoring, it's really easy. Hmm. And uh, we just use these monitors and we help the parents find the heart rate and show them you know, what it sounds like, show them what the other sounds you can hear when you're listening, like the mother's heartbeat, you can hear, you can hear the sounds of the, you know, placenta, just so they can distinguish between what the baby's heart rate is, and what, for example, their own heart rate is. And I always tell them, if you hear it slow, you know, just take your own heart rate, and you'll be able to see whether you're just picking up, you know, your 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 own circulation. We also have a, 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 uh, video that we did that was that's put on our our website which is called Mm heartsoundsathome.com and if you pull that up you can click on the on the video and it's about a three minute video that shows you exactly where to put the, the the ultrasound wand you know, help helps you figure out how to get the heartbeat and basically what to do to troubleshoot. I see. The the other the other thing that I think has made it a lot easier and inspired a lot of the parents with a lot of confidence is that we now have it set up where if they have a question, they can send an audio text wow. just on their on their phone. And it's just like sending a regular text obviously, but you you know, you, you play the, the hurt sounds, and then I get the text, and the other investigators get the text, and they can say, we can say, oh, it's fine, or, hmm, you know, you want to get it again in an hour, or try it again and don't press so hard. It just really reassures the parents and decreases the amount of time we have to come in to see if the heart rate is really abnormal
0: i see and is this uh if like uh, you uh, obviously have a wonderful donator uh, uh to, to give you these devices for this research are these expensive items uh, do you have any idea whether insurance companies might uh, consider uh paying for these
1: they're 39.95 on ebay
0: oh that's not too bad no,
1: no, so, so most of the parents can really afford them i see um if if they're not a part of the
0: study I see uh well, that's very interesting, and certainly the notion that the mothers are involved in the care of themselves, of course, and their fetus, I'm sure is a big motivator as well for the patients in this, in this group.
1: Right. It, it, it can work both ways, though. You know, one of the important things I think that our IRB here in Colorado first brought up was you want to be sure that you are not creating more anxiety than you need to. So for our first study, which was really the pilot study on the first 125 patients, we had a survey and we did ang- testing for using the common scales for anxiety and depression um, just to be sure that we weren't doing more harm than good. I see. And those, and those came out really positively. The mothers felt empowered. They felt they would monitor again in subsequent pregnancies, um, especially since they had the backup of us to listen if they had a question.
0: Right. Mothers I-
1: are Mothers are amazing. I mean, we know that and... It's proved even more in this in this study, certainly to their credit,
0: certainly, <laughs> my mother would agree with that yes right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And if you met her, you'd agree as well. You know, I uh, I have to say your paper was really extraordinary in that I think maybe for the first time it really gets a better feeling for the time window of of, of opportunity. Uh, your paper suggests that that window is quite narrow into which therapy can be effective at potentially reversing the process of going from second to third degree block. I wonder if you might be able to share with the audience your thoughts on what that time interval likely is and whether it might make sense to even do this type of monitoring more frequently even than the BID in your, in your work.
1: Well, we were sort of surprised and also very sobered by how quickly this disease takes hold and, and advances. Um, you know, we didn't expect it was going to be less than a day. And of course, that totally explains why studies like the PRIDE study, which was so well-conceived, you know didn't work it, it's it's a lot shorter than a week
0: mm. and you
1: need a technique where you can surveil much more frequently you know ideally we would have continuous monitoring on these moms and i think maybe in the future that's going to happen but that's impractical and we really can't do that so your point about the twice a day is really important and what we're going to be uh, discussing and proposing in our next uh, research project is going to be to do it every eight hours. I see. Of course, we, we have to be careful um, because... We can't ask the mothers to do it too late because then if they find something, someone will have to, uh, you know, a fetal cardiologist will have to come in if it's irregular, if the heart rate's irregular and evaluate them. And we, we try not to to do that. So we have them listen for the last time at about 8 o'clock. So it's not the middle of the night.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: And I think that's really important because some of the criticism we've got about this from uh, our, our, our potential co-investigators is that, well, you know, we'd rather not come in in the middle of the night, just like none of us would like to come to do. Yeah. but So we're trying to make it palatable, really, to all. So it seems like this, you know, if it's 24 hours or more, uh, it's not going to work. The treatment doesn't work. We now have, and you know, it's such a small number, and that's the problem. And we made some mistakes in, in this paper. And one of the, the big mistakes we did is that we didn't measure antibody titers. Yes. And part of that is because it's so difficult. There's research labs that do it at Edgar Yegi and Earl Silverman's labs up in Toronto and Joe Bion's lab in New York. But to the practitioner, You know, these aren't really available. So we have found a really nice place in Utah that will measure the titers. And when we started measuring them, we found that some mothers who had a positive screen had such low antibodies that they weren't at risk at all. Right. So we just said, you know, go home and have a good life. Mm. And I- I'm afraid that our results were, you know, so limited just because we included a lot of mothers with very low titers. But but we now have had a total of seven mothers who have developed block. I should say we, and also Edgar Yagi. He published a, a really nice paper with Dr. Khan as the first author, and he had discovered first uh, some AV block serendipitously, really by echo mm. in very high risk patients. So he was following them very closely. Yes. And what what we all, what the two of us all found was that the mothers who heard an abnormal had an abnormal doppler and waited 24 hours before they sought medical attention were already in third degree block and yeah. by an abnormal doppler i don't mean a slow rate i mean an irregular rhythm which you know most of the time is going to be type one second degree av block
0: yes so
1: it seems the transition is that fast yeah on the other hand if the if the mother's seek medical attention and are treated rapidly within 12 hours, a 12-hour window, then the block uh, can revert to -to one-to-one conduction. It's not always... Sinus rhythm, per se, you know, sometimes it's first degree AV block with an interval of, you know, 180 or 200 or so, but it's one to one conduction. And those babies, thus far, I think the oldest one is probably about eight now, eight years old, have not needed pacing and have not progressed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was uh, really astonished at how quickly this uh, progressed, and it started me thinking about why probably in the past the literature on therapy has been so variable I think you your paper one of the one of the many ways in which it's so wonderful is that I think it gives you a very good understanding of why it is that some of the prior papers did show efficacy of therapy in fetal life and others did not. And it because I don't think it was as well understood the time course as you have been able to demonstrate in this work. I think that's one yeah. one of the many strengths of this work. I noticed that uh as you alluded to, there was a p one patient in the study in whom the diagnosis of second degree block was made, and then you treated it aggressively with IVIG and steroids, and there was resolution, and as you had just mentioned. I wonder if maybe you could explain what percentage of patients do you believe would be would respond to therapy if treated in the proper window. Are there any data on this? I know that for sure your paper demonstrates that if you're already at third degree, it seems like it's a done deal. But assuming that you could find that proper optimal window, is it your belief that all of these patients or most of these patients would be treatable to prevent the development of third-degree block?
1: Well, I don't think we should ever say always or never, right?
0: That's a but good point. <laughs> th- th-
1: there, is, there is data. There was a, a nice meta-analysis that was presented in the obstetrical literature. Uh, Vincenzo Brughella was, was the senior author on that paper. And what they did is they, they looked at the overall progression and regression of second-degree block in treated fetuses and fetuses that were not treated. Hmm. The, the problem is they don't specify which type of block it is. Uh. And it's not always straightforward to differentiate second-degree block from third-degree block. We've learned that in our work um, with fetal magnetocardiography. Yes. And then, of course, there's also always the false positive of blocked atrial bigeminy, which most Fetal cardio, I mean, I would say almost all fetal cardiologists can can identify. But every once in a while, you know, you'll have someone who uh, is is sent because of a possibility of block and turns out to have blocked atrial So, you know, that's another issue with the li- literature. But what they found was that uh, the overall progression from second degree. To third degree in treated fetuses was 54 percent, and in not treated fetuses it was 73 percent. While regression to either first degree or normal sinus rhythm was between 19 and 24 percent in those treated, and between 9 and 21 percent in those who were not treated. Okay, so and the goal of our of our next uh, project is really to see if we can if we can have a 60 percent regression. That that felt like something that was doable and something that people would would be acceptable to people, you know. Rather than saying, "Oh, I think you know we can turn this around a hundred percent of the time," I, I, we just don't have the data to support that. But I think we thought that sixty percent was really quite
0: reasonable. And you think you your reason you're thinking that it's going to be that high. Is because of the theory proposed from your paper that if you get in at the correct time window, the likelihood of efficacy will be improved. Is that basically it? That, that's,
1: that's the hypothesis. I see. And, and, and what we really, really hope to prove. I see. So, in, in order to do that, we're going to need a, a thousand high titer mothers. Oh, boy. Um, which and the high titer mothers are probably about fifty percent of all the mothers who carry the antibodies. Okay. So if we have a sample size of twenty five patients with second degree block from these a thousand, um, the power calculation is ninety percent is with ninety percent um, and confidence intervals of seventy eight to a hundred and a margin of error of only twelve percent. I see. And that that also accounts for you know uh, mothers. Who 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 drop out of the study I see so it's doable but it's going to require you know a lot of cooperation from from our our co-investigators and we have some really excellent co investigators signed up who are very enthusiastic about this, and they include both maternal fetal medicine specialists and fetal cardiologists. I see. So th- there's a great excitement about this, largely because there are no evidence based guidelines. No one really knows what to do. And so what happens is people either, you know, do an echo every week for 13 weeks or they just say, I'm not convinced anything works so they do nothing or they do something in between
0: how interesting and clearly
1: we need to have some direction
0: I see Wow well that's uh, that's really quite interesting and I'm sure uh, people are gonna be waiting with bated breath I have to say I was quite surprised when I was reading the editorial that accompanied your work the authors made the point that something like two to three percent of pregnant patients actually have some titers suggestive of autoimmune disease, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is that really only half of those patients have titers that are probably potentially uh, injurious to a fetus.
1: Well, it, it seems that you have to have a. I mean, it's clearly not only the titers. There's clearly something else going on too. Yes. But it seems like you, if you have low titers, you're really not at risk. I
0: see. And
1: I, I think the number probably of women, um, pregnant women with SSA antibodies, is a little bit less than what was quoted in that editorial. Okay. Um, but it's still, it's still a substantial amount, and of course that brings up the whole question of will we ever do universal screening? And I think before we do universal screening, we have to show that early diagnosis is possible and treatment will work.
0: All right. Well, Bettina, before I uh, let you go, uh, we've talked a lot about this wonderful project. I was just wondering maybe you could share with the audience uh, what's next in the uh, world of uh, researching this uh, very important topic.
1: Well, I'm very happy to announce that we are going to be starting another study. Uh, We are applying for NIH funding through the NHLBI. Uh, The people primarily involved are going to be myself, and I have the amazing opportunity to uh, join forces with Jill Byan, who will be the the co-PI on this grant. And she thought of the title. It's called um, The Stop Block uh, with a Q study which stands for surveillance and treatment to prevent fetal A V block likely to occur quickly. Nice. So, <laughs> isn't that isn't that a great title? I
0: do, I, I love just,
1: it. Yeah, I have to smile every time I see it. And she's just been instrumental in, in putting this grant together and and she has so much experience and has a desire equal to mine to really see this through. And I'm just so lucky to be working
0: with her. Well, I'm quite sure we'll all be very excited to see the results of that, because if it's anywhere near as impressive as this paper, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot of important things from it. I really am most appreciative of your time, uh, Bettina, coming on the podcast. I can't express to you how many people were excited when I announced that you were going to be on. You are actually our fourth or fifth fetal expert. We've had like a who's who of fetal cardiology. We had Mary D'Onofrio. And we had uh, Maciej Slotki who's a fetal medicine guy in Poland, and we've had Shubi Stravastava. and we even had uh, a a fellow, Benjamin Barnes, who wrote this magnificent uh, letter to the editor of New England Journal about using rapamycin inhibitors like uh, serolimus for the treatment of fetal tumors. And so I would say this is just as exciting as those, uh, those wonderful guests we've had. And I'm most appreciative of your time and for coming on. And I'm really excited to see the next step in this wonderful research. Thank you so much for coming tonight.
1: Well, thank you, Rob. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about something that means a great deal to me, and uh, thank you for including me.
0: It's my pleasure. Well, as is often the case with an excellent guest, I have very little to add. Dr. Cunio very clearly explained her research in this paper this week and also pointed to some very exciting work that's coming forward in the next couple of years. Learning more about whether or not there is an optimal time for intervention for fetal heart block will be important going forward and learning also whether or not therapy is effective even when given at the appropriate time is also something that appears from our conversation to not yet be well established. If therapy is delivered at the appropriate time Which fetuses are more likely to be responsive? Are all fetuses going to respond or only some? Is it related to the titer of the mother, the timing of the therapy, or other factors that we've not yet discovered? These are amongst the many different factors that are going to need to be studied. And I, for one, am very happy to hear that investigators like Dr. Bettina Cunio, are working feverishly to figure this issue out. If you're like me, you're waiting with bated breath for the next report of Dr. Cunio and her associates throughout the world. To conclude our 41st episode of the podcast, we'll hear the magnificent American soprano Eileen Perez, who is the winner of the 2012 Richard Tucker Award. In 2016, she also received the $50,000 Beverly Sills Award, and she is commonly viewed as one of the great American up-and-coming singers. Ms. Perez is the daughter of Mexican immigrants, was born in Chicago, and grew up in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Today, we'll hear Ms. Perez sing the beautiful song, L'Orexiza, which translates The Exquisite Hour, and this song is written by the composer Renaldo Hahn. Thank you very much for joining me this week for our 41st episode of the podcast, and thanks once again to Patina Cunio for her wonderful contribution. I look forward to seeing everybody next week for our 42nd episode.